This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, hopes for finding survivors in the collapsed Surfside Florida condo dim, and a picture of what caused the disaster starts to emerge. Search and rescue efforts are still underway this morning. But a hope for finding any of the more than 150 people still unaccounted for alive is fading fast. More than three days after part of the 12-story condo tower collapsed, officials have yet to make the switch to declaring it a recovery mission. Our top priority continues to be search and rescue. Amidst the anguish of families looking for loved ones, anger increases with evidence that condo officials knew there were flaws with the building's construction. That this is a highly complex disaster. We'll have the latest from the scene, plus we'll talk with Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio and Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. Then it doesn't happen often in Washington these days, a group of Republicans and Democrats appearing together, announcing an agreement on a massive trillion-dollar bill to help repair America's crumbling roads and bridges. We made serious compromises on both ends. But compromise turned quickly to confusion as President Biden said he won't sign it unless there's also a big spending bill focused on child care, education, and more. If this is the only thing that comes to me, I'm not signing. It's in tandem. We'll straighten things out with White House senior advisor Cedric Richmond after the president was forced to retreat from that veto threat. Montana Democratic Senator John Tester is one of the key negotiators. We'll talk to him, too. Plus, as the new Delta variant threatens to undermine the COVID recovery, vaccine rates continue to fall. We'll talk with Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We've got a lot to get to today, but we begin with the staggering event we learned of when we woke up Thursday. That part of a 12-story building had collapsed in the middle of the night without warning in southern Florida. Our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, is in Surfside. Mark? Good morning, John. In the search for survivors, hope is what keeps everyone going here, both the search teams and the relatives of all the missing. Somewhere in the rubble, 156 people remain unaccounted for. Under this mound of smoldering rubble, in the calamity of Champlain South, urban search and rescue teams look for miracles. We don't have a resource problem here, we have a luck problem. It's heavy lifting for searchers. They were fighting a deep fire and smoke and worsening air quality, issues now contained. But crews still battle the weight of the rubble and their emotions. No survivors have been found since Thursday. 
You wake up in the morning hoping that, that more and more people were, were pulled out and, um, you, know, you know, that just news hasn't been uh, what we had hoped. 1.30 a.m. Thursday morning. As residents slept, the 12-story tower shuddered, then collapsed. Rodrigo Salem's friends were in the building when it fell. They've told him its condition worried them. The building was unsafe. I know that the, that the garage was kind of flooded. I know that there were cracks on the walls. Confounding officials why the building suddenly fell. Learning that a definitive cause could take months. But in 2018, a consultant's engineering review of Champlain South found major structural damage. Inside the parking garage, pictures showed abundant cracking observed in the concrete columns, beams, and walls. Resident Jeanette Aguero noticed. It was always wet, even when it was dry out, and you kind of wondered where did that water come from. That review also found a design flaw, a major error, and more structural damage below the pool deck and entrance drive. Waterproofing had failed. If not replaced, it would cause the extent of the concrete deterioration to expand exponentially. Nearly three years later, extensive repairs were set to begin when the building pancaked. After we address the support for the families, is we are going to do a very deep dive into why this building fell down. Champlain South has a sister property, Champlain North, built at the same time by the same developer. For now, evacuations there are voluntary. Miami-Dade County's mayor has ordered a safety audit of all buildings in the county that are at least 40 years old or five stories tall and anything else built by Champlain South's developer. No one wants a repeat disaster here. John? Thank you, Mark. We go now to Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who visited the site of the disaster yesterday. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. You toured the area. What did you learn yesterday, and have you learned anything new this morning? Well, I was there on Thursday night, and I can tell you from Thursday night to yesterday afternoon, uh, the entire scene has changed. There's a tremendous response. You know, here, we're here in Florida, are very blessed to have some of the best search and rescue teams and task force in the country. So that's changed. It's just a huge, they've set up, set up almost a tent city there. Um, I think what we've learned is what's been announced public. I think the officials have been very good in South Florida about sharing with people what they know. Uh, they obviously shared that they had found or identified now five people that perished. They didn't announce the names at the time because some of these family members haven't even fully been able to notify all of their family members. One of the unique things about this building is it had a substantial number of people that were foreign nationals uh, who were owners or renters there and that were and that were in the rubble. So. Um, Obviously, the, the searchers are, are desperately working on this very complex. Um, it's 12 stories. If you look at it from the north side of it, you can see it. You can literally see the layers. And then inside of there, uh, there's everything from toxic chemicals, fire, smoke, um, all kinds of other hazards. And they have to be very careful. They move one piece of rebar here. The rest of the pile could collapse somewhere else and either hurt the responders or hurt any survivors that might still be down there. In your uh, discussions and in your tours, what, what's been for you the most important thing uh, that you wanted to know that you can, you can help out with? Well, I wanted to make sure that they had all the resources they needed that are available to them across government. And obviously, there are things the federal government has that it might be able to provide. I know the Army Corps of Engineers has already sent a couple of engineers just to do some preliminary assessment of the building that's still standing and, and those to immediately uh, alongside uh, that complex just to make sure that in the in the search process, you're not going to suffer 
some uh, some additional uh, collapses or damage. And the other is that they're still very much in rescue mode. Um, they Some of these people working on this were in Haiti, for example, after that earthquake, when they pulled people out of the rubble uh, 10 days after. So I remember the case of, a, I believe, 70-year-old woman that was pulled out of the rubble almost a week and a half after the earthquake. So they are very much intent on saving lives still. And, and they're, they're obviously understand every day gets more difficult. And, and that, to me, was very important. And that came across clearly. You mentioned that there are a lot of there were, were a lot of residents of the building who have relatives overseas. You're on the Foreign Relations Committee. How how does that process work with the federal government, the State Department, in terms of connecting with those families? Well, I think how it work, how it works. How I know it works is the first thing that happens is that they go uh, to their if they're overseas, they have to get an emergency visa. They don't have one. If they come from a country that requires a visa to enter into the U.S. And so we were we were very we were able to we were able to get them those visas or process them through the State Department. The, the State Department was excellent in all of these different places. And on top of that, what we were able to do now, the State Department is on site. So the State Department is on site. It's going to help expedite uh, the, this visa process as listen, arrangements have to be made for relatives to come. But sadly, we know there may have to be arrangements made for um you know, uh, the, the bodies, uh, the remains of, of, of those to be sent overseas if they're going to be buried there or, or, or cremated there, or their family's going to do services there. So there's a lot of work to do there. We're, we're grateful the State Department's on site now to help with that. As you reach out to the community and talk to the community, people are searching for some explanation to this. It's going to take a long time and nobody wants to jump to conclusions. But there's also a question of whether any contributing factor might affect any other building uh, in South Florida. Um, how much is that a concern, and have uh, has that been taken care of by officials there? Well, we can't say it's been taken care of because that's a very uh, that's a very complicated question. This is unusual, right? This has never happened before. We hope it never happens again. It shouldn't happen again. This doesn't happen anywhere. So obviously, something very unusual happened here. I do know, and I understand why people living in the area, particularly a building just north of it, that's basically a twin. I mean, it's the same architectural designs, company that built it would be concerned about it. And I know that they have now been made FEMA eligible, meaning if they would like to relocate, FEMA will help them with those arrangements. Um, I know the county's taking this very seriously. I know that a team is now in from Washington, from an agency that most people have never, it's under the Department of Commerce, that specialize in massive catastrophic structural failures. And they're going to come and help sort of local authorities identify what kinds of things need to be preserved for a full-scale investigation. I have little doubt that we will know why this happened and be able to make changes to building codes if necessary to prevent it from happening again. Uh, but right now, you know, 99% of the focus is on trying to find any survivors and give these families closure uh, on, on this, on this, uh, on this terrible tragedy, even as already thoughts are coming into places that, you know, what's the, what, why, why this happened and so that it never happens again. You've sponsored a very different piece of legislation called Built to Last, which is to have more climate resistant infrastructure. Again, that's quite different than what happened here. But in South Florida, people do worry about the sea air, the salt, the rising sea levels, the fact that some of these buildings are shrinking. Do you have questions about the environmental impact that might uh, have contributed in some way here and whether that's a larger issue to look at? Well, obviously, look, I'm not a structural engineer, but I don't think we should start out an inquiry like this by ruling anything out. And um, I think obviously everything needs to be on the table. Whatever the cause was, whatever contributed to it, we need to know it. And, uh, and I don't think we should be in a position now of ruling anything out because we just don't know. 
And, um, and it's important not just to, to provide uh, certainty about what happened here, but from that information, I would imagine you can deduce whether other places are similarly um, um, in danger and what we need to do moving forward to protect against it. With the minute we have left, Senator, I want to ask you about infrastructure in Washington. There's a bipartisan deal. Is that something you might be able to sign on to? Yeah, I want to be for infrastructure. I think it's important for us to build infrastructure in this country, um, including to mitigate against the rise of sea level, sea level, to mitigate against sea level rise, which we know is a major issue in, for example, southeast Florida. I think the problem here, as we have seen, is two things. And, and obviously, because of this tragedy, I haven't had a chance to sit down and go line by line through this deal. The first, obviously, is these mixed messages from the White House about whether support for that bill is linked to support for something else. And second is uh, how is this being paid? The, the details of these sort of deals is always important because there might be some important things in there that I can't support. But, uh, but generally speaking, I want to be for something. I want us to do infrastructure. All right, Senator Rubio, we'll leave those details to a future discussion where we thank you for being with us and our hearts uh, go out to you and, and, and your community. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Joining us now is the mayor of Miami-Dade County, Daniela Levine Cava, who joins us from Surfside. Mayor Cava, thank you for being with us. Our hearts go out to you and your community. Can you give us an update on the latest? The good news, we were able to control the fire and the smoke uh, as of noon on Saturday. So Saturday afternoon and through the night on Sunday, uh, there was clearer visibility, search continued. Uh, they're, they're, of course, uh, doing everything from above. They're using the sonar, the cameras, the dogs. Uh, they, they have the, the tunneling uh, below and uh, they created a trench to separate the smoky area from the not smoky area uh, to be able to proceed unabated. It's been three and a half days. Is that, is that time nearing that it'll switch from a rescue effort to a recovery? We are in search and rescue, and we have just been joined by additional um, uh, search and rescue team from Israel. Uh, we had already uh, some, some Mexican experts on scene. Uh, everybody that is needed is on the site and doing the work, and we're continuing our efforts to find people alive. Normally, nobody wants to jump to any kinds of conclusions. In this case, it, it, there is some urgency because uh, it, there's some worry that anything might have contributed here might affect other buildings. Do you have a sense of the contributing factors and how is that affecting how you think about other buildings in the area? I'm definitely focused on the search and rescue operation. Uh, we are working with our uh, regulatory staff at the county to review all buildings that uh, have, are approaching or are at their 40-year recertification and beyond to make sure that everything is in order with their recertification. So we're doing a deep dive over the next 30 days to assess if anything further is needed with any of those buildings. And uh, some of the cities are taking their own actions uh, because uh, I'm responsible for the county buildings outside of cities and the cities have their own process. We've all been struck by the grief and the staggering amount of, of sadness. Um, what's being done in the community to handle the emotional uh, portion of this tragedy? The families are together in the Family Assistance Center that's been established and their numbers are swelling as people come from around the country and around the world to be here on site a vigil until more news is known. 
and we have every possible support for them. Uh, we have grief counselors, we have clergy of every sort, uh, and we have the community. The community is really providing the support uh, for each other and the inner circle of those who are directly affected and the whole community. Surfside is on standby for this important uh, time and in solidarity and the whole world. We feel the support of the whole world for us right here in Surfside. And Mayor, how about you? You haven't been in the job long. Can you give us some insight into what it's like to handle the emotional and logistical challenge of something no one could ever imagine having to be prepared for? I, I thank God that I've had 65 years of experience and wisdom to contribute to this situation. Um, clearly nothing I ever anticipated and something that I am fully dedicated to uh, addressing with all of my might. All right, Daniela Levine Cava, Mayor, we are very grateful for you being with us and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. We go now to the senior advisor to the president, Cedric Richmond. Good morning, Mr. Richmond. I want to start with that awful condominium collapse. The FEMA director is going down to Miami. What more can the administration do? And is the president making preparations to pay a visit to the area? The short answer is it's a tragedy. We're monitoring it uh, very, very closely. And uh, also, we're going to do anything and everything that we can uh, to assist. And so we signed the emergency declaration, or the president signed the emergency declaration. As soon as he got it, the FEMA director is going down to make sure that uh, our federal assets are helping and that we're doing everything uh, possible uh, to help. Let me move on to the president's infrastructure plan, a part of his American Jobs Plan. Uh, he, he came out in support of a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Then he seemed to tie it. He didn't seem to. He tied it to a larger trillion-dollar spending package. That angered some of the Republicans he had been negotiating with. Yesterday, he put out a statement that seemed to walk that back. Where are we with this? The president expects to fulfill his promise to the American people, which started with the American Rescue Plan, which we passed. Uh, we're winning on vaccinations. We're bringing the economy back. Uh, growth is up. Unemployment is down. Then we wanted to pass an infrastructure bill. Uh, and we did. We, we came to an agreement on a historic infrastructure uh, deal. And then we're going to pass the families plan. And so the president yesterday was bringing the focus back to the fact that there are 10 million homes in this country with lead pipes, 400,000 schools with lead pipes, bridges that are collapsing, and, and back to the historic nature of but the deal that was struck with Republicans. And I think that a important part of this is to say where Democrats and Republicans can agree, we should agree, move on, create progress for the American people. And where we don't agree, we can fight, and we can fight hard. And that's what we expect to do on American Families Plan, but, but we also expect to win. Let me ask you this. As historic as it may be, it won't be historic if it doesn't pass. So the politics here, here matter. Are the Republicans back on track, and do you think you'll get 60 Republican votes for this infrastructure package? We would hope to get more than uh, 60 votes for this package because of uh, all of the things that it does and the needs in the country. And so uh, what we're hearing, and uh, even some of the interviews I've seen on TV, uh, Republicans are standing by the deal. The president's going to honor his word, and we're going to hope that they're going to honor their word. But we would hope that more come along, because this is historic. It is important. Look, we have crumbling bridges and roads right. all 
around this country and we have to do something about it. And it seems like the president has a bump in the rug problem. You push the bump in the rug down in one place and it shows up somewhere else. He's got the Republicans back on track that he worked with, but his problem now is liberals in his own party. They want a commitment from the president that the environmental protections, child care, all the things that were a part of his original infrastructure package are going to get a fair hearing, and they're worried that it won't. So Democrats may not vote for this infrastructure bill, or are they all set and ready to vote for it? I think that you're going to see overwhelming Democratic support for a bill that removes lead pipes, that invest in electric buses, electric vehicle charging stations, a clean energy power grid. All of those things are historic in nature and wildly supported by Democrats and supported by Republicans also. And we think that Democrats are going to vote for it. But the budget resolution will be crafted in the Senate and House of Representatives and the process on it will be controlled by them. Here's the problem, Mr. Richmond. Those, those liberal Democrats are saying, if I don't get a promise now, what will happen is this negotiation will take place and those environmental provisions that I care so much about will just get dealed away and they will, will have lost all of their leverage. And so they're and not, would, they, uh, that's why the president was making the promise, to lock in his promise so that he would do what they want him to do, particularly on the environment. Well, I would remind you and those Democrats that uh, the president has uh, met all the challenges that he's faced and he's kept his promises from the American Rescue Plan to the infrastructure plan. And by the way, we put uh, all of the green stuff in the legislation uh, for the infrastructure bill. So whether it was the clean energy tax credit or some of the other things, we're committed to it. It just now shifts over to the American Families Plan along with the care economy and the education and all the other things we want to do. And we fully expect, expect to get it uh, passed. But so you, you what think people you'll get every doing Senate a, Democrat to vote for the infrastructure bill? Everything that we've done so far has come out the way the president has planned it. And I think that it's very, it's not wise to underestimate this president, his ability to bring people together, unify his party, and move this country forward. And so he's done that with everything he's done so far, and we expect to do it with the American Families Plan also. Let me ask you about the announcement this, this week that the president made to um, take on rising gun crime. The president, in his proposals this week, said money that had been set aside for COVID relief could be used to uh, hire more police. There's been a big debate about defunding the police. It seems that the president's decision rendered a verdict on that, that the, the solution is not getting rid of police officers, but hiring more of them. Well, the president said on the campaign trail that he wanted to give 300 million more dollars towards policing in this country, uh, to one, for body cameras and, and technology, uh, but two, he supports constitutional policing and better uh, community policing so that uh, the community and the police have a better relationship. But what we did here is uh, make sure that cities understood that they could use the money that we sent them for state and local aid to replenish their police forces because a lot of them had to lay off furlough police officers and other first responders because of the pandemic and the loss of revenue. All right, Mr. Richmond, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. 
all of my mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Welcome back to Face the Nation. One of the lawmakers who worked on that bipartisan agreement aimed at boosting the nation's infrastructure was Senator John Tester. He joins us from Big Sandy, Montana. Good morning, Senator. Good to be with you, John. So before we get into the chopping up of the politics here, can we step back for a second? You were involved in a bipartisan agreement. What does bipartisanship look like in today's politics? Well, it was, in this case, five Democrats and five Republicans that sat down and uh, and compromised and gave a little and I think ended up with a package that makes sense for the American public and that it uh, creates infrastructure, creates jobs, supports businesses, and uh, is historic in nature. And uh, we argued, we fought, uh, we debated, and uh, in the end, we all agreed, all 10 of us agreed on every provision in this bill. And uh, I think the result of that is uh, people setting their differences aside and working together and helping build this country. Just as my uh, ancestors did, uh, we did it in that room. And now we've got another tough job, and that's getting enough votes on both sides of the aisle to get this through the process and get it to the president's desk. Let me talk about that other tough job, because uh, good ideas can uh, not get anywhere if they don't get the votes. So let's start with the Republican side. You had five Republicans. You'll need five more if you hold every Democrat to get it through the Senate. Uh, How possible do you think that is? There was some heartburn when the president connected the bills together. A, is that heartburn gone among the ones who were working with you? And B, how what do you think the chances are getting at least five more Republicans? Look, John, I think that possibility is going to be great. I think we're going to get a lot more than five more Republicans. And I think we're also going to see bumps in the road as this goes forth through the process. Uh, you know, every week there's probably going to be another uh, problem that arises. We'll work through those problems just like we work through them in, in our gang of 10 folks. And, uh, and, and we're, I think we'll get good support from both sides of the aisle. I think we'll get far more than 60 votes in the end to get this through the Senate. And on the Democratic side, there are a number of Democratic senators who said if it doesn't include uh, the environmental provisions that are originally a part of the president's package, they're not going to vote for it. Do you think that is the kind of uh, line in the sand people draw during these things and then in the end they vote with you? Uh, Or do you think that this could be something that loses some Democratic senators on the way to passage? Time, time will tell on that, John. I think uh, uh, this package does have some environmental uh, uh, environmental programs to it, environmental policies to it. Uh, whether it's enough to to satisfy um, the folks who you know are advocating for more and more things to be done in the environment, which, by the way, I don't think is something that uh, is wrong either. It's just this is where we ended up at. And uh, you know, look, if, if we do when we do a reconciliation package. Uh, depending on what that package looks like, uh, you know, it certainly could have some environmental, uh, additional environmental uh, parts to it. 
Let me talk to you about that reconciliation package. This would be a, a big spending bill that would go that would pass with Democratic votes, votes only, presumably. Uh, a, a portion of that bill would likely be the president's clean electricity standard. Um, as we talked about it, some of your colleagues, Senator Smith of Minnesota, has said she won't vote for a reconciliation package unless it has that standard, which seeks to decarbonize the uh, electricity by 2030, the electric grid. You come from a state with a lot of coal production. Um, would you support the president's uh, clean energy standard in a reconciliation bill that Senator Smith says is necessary to vote for it? Well, look, I do come from a state that has a lot of coal, a lot of natural gas, a lot of oil. And I also come from a state right now that is under severe drought. And so I think we need to make common sense, common sense steps forward to deal with climate. And uh, there has to be a transition. Anybody will tell you that. Uh, you just can't shut off the spigot. You have to move forward in a common sense way so this economy continue to uh, grow but also deal with the climate issues. So, uh, you know, that will be in the details, John. We'll take a look at it when it comes up. Uh, and, uh, and if it is something that I can't live with, then we'll try to massage it through the process uh, that we go through in reconciliation to amend and then make it so it's something that the whole country can, uh, can, can live with and, and actually uh, expand our economy with it. I want to ask you, as a farmer, and, and you mentioned the heat, um, Montana has seen 100-year records in the last month. Half the population is in drought areas. In California, it's just, it's just crippling the farmers, the drought. Um, will, do you think that will lead to inflation on products uh, that farmers produce in Montana? And then secondly, can farmers adapt in, in, uh, in a climate that keeps getting hotter? Well, we have been adapting uh, in a climate that has been getting hotter. This has been going on for decades. Uh, I've been on this farm, uh, which is a farm my, my grandparents homestead. This will be our 44th harvest for Charlotte and I. This will probably be the worst harvest we've ever cut uh, because of the drought. Uh, but, but farmers continue to adapt. They continue to change. But one thing is for certain, uh, the, the climate is very volatile now, more volatile than it's ever been since I took over the farm. And we do have to do some things and encourage other countries to do things to move us in the right direction on climate. If we don't, I think some of the things you're talking about, about food prices going up and possibly even food not being, uh, not having enough uh, becomes real. And uh, not only for the United States, but for the entire world. So we've, we've got a lot of work to do here, John. We need to do it in a bipartisan way. We need to stop the fear mongering around climate change and start doing things that work for this country. All right, Senator Tester, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We look forward to having you back again. One of the states with the lowest vaccination rates in the country is Arkansas. Hospital admissions in the state are up 30% in the last week. Joining us from Little Rock is Governor Asa Hutchinson. Good morning, Governor. Uh, good morning, John. Good to be with you. Thank you for being with us. The University of Arkansas Medical Sciences uh, had to reopen its COVID wing, and the CEO there said, we have seen a 300% increase in the numbers of pac patients hospitalized. What's going on? Well, those that are being hospitalized are those that have not been vaccinated. And what you see in Arkansas, and that probably replicates uh, some of what you see across the country, is that in March and April, whenever we were struggling with vaccine supplies, 
uh, that we started getting our vaccines out there. You saw our cases go down dramatically. And when our cases went down, the demand for vaccines was reduced as well. And so what you have is that people started feeling comfortable. Uh, people saw the cases, the hospitalizations down. And so the urgency of getting the vaccine slowed down. We've got to make sure that we do everything we can to get the word out, which we have. We've used incentives that have not been very successful. Uh, we've obviously done marketing uh, for our vaccines. Uh, we're educating, doing everything that we can. And we're up to uh, you know, a 50% of adults uh, already are vaccinated, but we've got to get that higher. We're doing everything we can to encourage that. And I think as if, uh, if if incentives don't work, reality will. And as you see the hospitalizations go up, the cases go up, I think you'll see the vaccination rate increase as well. Help us think through some of this, because is, is it just the lack of urgency? Because reality has been pretty uh, apparent for the last, you know, more than a year and a half. So is there some other portion of this hesitancy that is tougher to crack than just simply the fact that it's not blaring from the headlines every day? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there is uh, vaccine hesitancy. Part of it is uh, we'll just delay it. But the part that you're most concerned about are those that uh, that believe don't believe in the efficacy of it. They believe that the, in the conspiracy theories. Uh, I had uh, emails today from a business person who uh, was discouraging vaccines and. And, and, you know, part of it is just the nature of, uh, of humans that uh, unless they are absolutely convinced there is that vaccine hesitancy. One of the challenges was uh, the fact that this is an, under FDA emergency use authorization. And so we need to get that research completed so it can be final approval. I think that will help. Secondly, you look back and I think the, uh, the uh, pause on the J&J &J vaccine increased the hesitancy. I think that was an error. I don't think it was necessary, but those factors uh, together, I think, increased the hesitancy. To explain to me why the change in the FDA uh, emergency use authorization would make it easier to get people vaccinated. Well, whenever they see emergency use authorization that uh, then they say, well, they haven't made a final approval. They haven't got all the research completed that is needed on there. They want to do more study. And so it was approved as emergency use. And so for that reason, you can't mandate it. Uh, we don't mandate it in Arkansas. We have to rely upon the education. And part of that is, even though there is a minor level of risk with the vaccine, the risk is so much greater if you get COVID. And that's what we're seeing now. Uh, one person uh, that I am familiar with in terms of the story, uh, they mocked the vaccine. They ultimately got COVID. They're on a respirator now and their life is in jeopardy. That's what uh, we've got to continue to educate and realize lives are at stake to encourage the vaccine uh, taking. Do you have to make a policy choice? I know you've said you don't want to shut things down, but if these numbers keep getting worse, do you have to think about anything? I don't know, mask mandates, anything to um, protect people from this portion of the population that is so resistant? Well, theoretically, that could be on the table, but in reality, we're beyond that. We know what we need to do. 
And I don't believe, uh, even with the increase that we've seen in hospitalizations, that uh, we're going to go back to the levels we were last winter. But uh, it is a concern, but I don't believe that you're going to go back to the heavy government restrictions that we had at the outset of this pandemic. People know what to do. Uh, they're instructed in it, and uh, we're having to count upon their individual responsibility to do the right thing. We're hoping they will get there. One more quick question on this. Uh, trans experts say that this Delta variant plus uh, the fo fall and winter, things are going to get worse. Do you have to start making preparations now in case there continues to be hesitancy and those predictions turn out to be true? Well, the Delta variant is a great concern to us. We see that uh, impacting uh, our increasing cases and hospitalizations. And so, yes, uh, you have to take the uh, counsel of the medical experts seriously whenever they look at this coming winter. Uh, although I don't think we're going to get there, uh, we do have to have those contingency plans in place mm -hmm. in the event we do see challenges uh, coming uh, this next winter. I've got a quick question on infrastructure. It can seem like an abstract idea to people, but the I-40 bridge that went from Tennessee to Arkansas had to be shut down. Tell us how bad it got and how that's affected the economy in the area. Well, it's been a uh, terrible loss to uh, our economy uh, in terms of the increased cost of transportation logistics. The I-40 bridge is a major artery. It is still shut down. And so uh, that it helps us to get our goods across the Mississippi River to the East Coast. Uh, we have commuters going back and forth. I think the Trucking Association says it costs us $2.4 million a day, just an extra logistics cost. And so uh, we want to get that fixed. And it illustrates the need for the current infrastructure plan. I applaud uh, the senators that came together in a bipartisan way. From a governor's standpoint, uh, that helps us get to these kind of bridge repairs. It helps us to improve our road and bridge infrastructure, but also uh, our electric vehicle uh, modernization and uh, having those uh, systems in place. The water systems are important. Our Arkansas River navigation. So I hope they get to the next step and get that passed. All right, Governor Hutchinson, thanks so much for being with us. And we'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We go now to former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is also on the board of Pfizer. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. Good morning. Let's start uh, with this Delta variant. Um, the Great Britain has a better handle because they've had to face more of it. Um, it kind of looks like what things might be like in the United States um, after a little while. What have we learned from the UK about the Delta variant and what might that tell us about its actions here? 
Yeah, I think we're probably about a month or two behind the UK in terms of their experience with the variant. They're seeing cases grow there. It's certainly not taking off with the same velocity that we've seen past epidemics. And the other thing that we're observing about the UK experience right now is it's not having the same impact. So they've had about 90,000 cases. They've had about 1,000 hospitalizations. The vast majority are in people who are unvaccinated. Only 8% of people who've been va fully vaccinated are among the hospitalized patients. And so you have a situation where you have a population that has more immunity in it, not just through vaccination, but also through prior infection. So it's not having the same impact in terms of causing severe death and, and disease as it was during the last epidemic. So even the case fatality rate is down substantially. It's about 0.1 to 0.3 percent, depending on how you measure it. The experience in the U.S. is likely to be similar. We have a population that also has a lot of immunity in it through both vaccination and prior infection. But there are social compartments in the U.S., both geographic and social compartments, where you have under vaccination and you don't have a lot of immunity in the population. It's particularly rural parts in the South, particularly. You're seeing what's happening in Missouri right now, where about 60% of the infections are the Delta variant. And so that's a reflection of the fact that you have parts of the United States where we don't have a lot of vaccination and we also don't have a lot of prior infection. And those are going to be the more vulnerable parts of this country. So we had over the course of the last year and a half become used to hearing about spikes. This then what you're saying is not going to be a spike of the kind we're used to, but in certain communities, there are these upticks. Uh, what do they need to know in those communities? I think that's right. It's not going to be as pervasive. We're going to see um, pockets of the country. It's going to be hyper-regionalized. There are certain pockets of the country where you can have very dense outbreaks. And if you remember back in the fall, and when we had that, that um, epidemic in the Midwest that really started the national epidemic, it occurred in states like Wisconsin. Wisconsin lit up first. If you looked at what was happening there, it was in rural communities where you saw the very dense outbreak, and then it started to spread out from there. I think as you look across the United States, if you're a community that has low vaccination rates and you also think that there's low, prior, there's low immunity from prior infection, so the virus really hasn't coursed through the local population, those communities are vulnerable. So I think governors need to be thinking about how they build out health care resources in areas of the country where you still have a lot of vulnerability. We talked to Governor Hutchinson of, uh, of Arkansas, and he was saying that people don't feel a sense of urgency because of the success, oddly, of the vaccination and the fact that it's not on the front page. That keeps them from getting vaccinated because they don't think it's a, a big deal. Would you just kind of outline uh, the benefits of vaccination and the dangers of not getting vaccinated that go beyond just the health of the individual who may make that personal choice for themselves? Right. Well, there's certainly the benefits of vaccination in terms of just avoiding disease. And we know that this can be a severe disease. We also know that there's more long-term sequelae from having COVID. There's more long-term consequences. There was a study out of Norway just recently that looked at people who recovered from COVID. And it found that at six months, about 60% of people reported persistent symptoms. 37% reported problems with fatigue. 24% reported problems with memory. And what was startling about this study is it also showed that in younger populations, in people 16 to 30 years old, about 50% also reported persistent symptoms. And in fact, the loss of tell, um, taste and smell was most persistent in the younger population. So COVID isn't just an immediate illness. It's having sustained consequences. And then there's also the benefit to the community. If you're someone who's younger and healthier and you're not at risk from COVID or from a bad outcome from COVID, you feel like you're more impervious to the disease. There's nonetheless a lot of consequences to you being a chain in transmission, spreading the disease to others. If you get vaccinated, we know you're substantially less likely 
quickly to spread the disease to those around you. So if you have young children at home or you're interacting with older individuals who may not get all the benefits from vaccination or people who are immunocompromised, if you vaccinate yourself, you're far less likely to become asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic from the infection and go on to infect others. So there is that community aspect to getting vaccinated and protecting those you care about who are around you. In our previous discussions, you've talked about having to change the way in which vaccines are delivered, that officials have to come up with more clever and interesting ways. I wonder in that context what you think of the, the New York uh, effort that the mayor there has, um, is going to have at-home at vaccinations. Do you think that's, does that make some sense and, and that, might that be a way to pierce some of this hesitancy? Yeah, I think it's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be thinking about more bespoke ways to deliver the vaccine. We also need to move away from sort of a top-down national campaign to get people vaccinated and make more of a grassroots campaign, empower local leaders, local physicians to try to help reach out into their communities to get people vaccinated. People who are going to be convinced to get vaccinated by Tony Fauci or the Surgeon General, or me for that matter, probably are already vaccinated. And so we need to get into the vaccines into the hands of doctors, make it easier for doctors to supply vaccines in their offices. And both companies are trying to come up with formulations that will be easier to deliver in a doctor's office, including Pfizer, the company I'm on the board of. Um, we need to empower doctors to be vaccinating and supply the resources to do that. There was a study out from the Commonwealth uh, Foundation this week that showed of the people who remain unvaccinated, about 50 percent said they would be most convinced to become vaccinated from their local physicians, from their doctors. And so that's what we need to shift to. We need to shift to more of a grassroots, bottom-up campaign and move away from this top-down national campaign as we enter into the fall. There will be people seeking out vaccination heading into the fall as people contemplate going back to work and back to school. So I'm still optimistic we'll pick up more of the American population and get them vaccinated. But it's going to slow down um, as we get into the summer and prevalence declines and people feel safer. We, have, we are going to have to leave it there, Dr. Gottlieb. As always, we listen to every word you say, and so we're grateful for you being here. Thanks so much, Dr. Gottlieb, and we'll be right back in a moment. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Every Sunday, when I walk to this studio, I pass a firehouse. It is quiet that early in the morning. The firemen and women pass the time in easy conversation or preparing their equipment. It is nearly as peaceful as it was in the middle of the night Thursday at Champlain Tower South, just before the building collapsed. That nightmare coming at the hour where we risk feeling safest, asleep in our beds, summon police, emergency medical technicians, and firemen like the ones I pass on the way to work each Sunday. In an instant, that community of protection rushed to endanger their lives in the hope of saving the lives of others. Their heroism in falling rubble and live electrical wires gives hope in dark moments to the families and to the rest of us, staggered by what we see. It is all too big and the anguish and the loss, but because even when the sirens are not blaring, those men and women are still dedicated every day to life's preciousness to rescuing people they don't know simply because they are human. 
The rest of us may never face an acute moment of danger where we can be a hero, but we are all surrounded by humans every day to whom we can be generous, compassionate, and true. In these tragic moments, we feel our common human connection. We can honor those feelings by being like the first responders who recognize that human connection even after the tragedy passes. And officials in Surfside, Florida, have just announced that the death toll in that building collapse has risen. Nine have now been lost. Our prayers go out to those who've lost family or friends. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, Miami-Dade County Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, White House Senior Advisor Cedric Richmond, Montana Democratic Senator John Tester, Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson, former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.